In last week's episode of the rise of the Coca-Cola company, we looked at the developments that led up to the explosion in the demand for bottled Coke in the domestic American consumer market. And as we continue to look behind the scenes of the marketing genius that is the Coca-Cola company, we look around and start to notice that some of the modern day marketing operations are in action right in front of us. The other day, I was going for a walk in a nice little shopping village. It was called Whitley Shopping Village in Fairham. And as I walked down this array of shops, I actually noticed that there was a vendor in the middle of the street, and I went closer to investigate, and they were selling Coke's new flavour. Well, they weren't actually selling it, that's what I assumed in the first place, but actually they were giving them for free. They were chucking out Cokes everywhere opening them with other Coke cans and creating an experience, a new zero sugar flavour. And then when you walk down the end of the shopping village, you'll see a huge Coke truck and families were lining up to take pictures with a Santa Claus in the back. It was crazy. But this is a modern day example and this is one of many. This is just Fairham, a small town in Portsmouth of which is one of many cities in the United Kingdom. And there could be so many different marketing operations of the Coca-Cola company going on in all those other cities. It's crazy to comprehend it. And if you've been listening to the previous episodes of this series, you would have realized that the United States had a huge expansion. And I'm talking about the United Kingdom right now, so it is definitely safe to say that Coca-Cola is a global marketing machine. Whilst the Coca-Cola company was a marketing machine, the bottlers were referred to as somewhat of a cult. The bottlers formed Coca-Cola clubs in their respective cities and towns. They were almost Pablo Escobar-esque. They became well known for selling Coke and providing other services. When World War II arrived, one bottler put his own literature up to help prepare his customers for quote-unquote civil defense, covering everything from what to do in an air raid to the possible presence of foreign spies. But if we're looking at everything on an aggregate basis, then the bottlers appeared to get along with the Coca-Cola companies. However, their identities were distinct to be sure. Coke made its money comfortably up front from these syrup sales, whilst the bottlers had to squeeze out their profits farther along the chain. Coke enjoyed a kind of corporate eminence centered in the lovely city of Atlanta. The bottler, however, was a local guy whose manufacturing plant usually sat near the center of town. Coke believed in mass marketing, as we just mentioned, from the beginning of their operations, whereas the bottlers specialized in the personal touch. By the 1920s, schoolchildren were trooping through Coke plants on tours, school trips, excursions, etc., watching the familiar glass containers looping along the conveyor belts and filling with sweet brown soda. And they grew up to feel a connection with the Coca-Cola company. This resembled exactly the feeling I felt walking down Whitley Shopping Village and being offered a can of Coke to just enjoy whilst walking and going about one's business. The bottlers literally gave jobs to anybody to help the community. What was really interesting was that if there were no jobs left, there would always be some kind of generosity cascading in some form. It could be through new uniforms for a football team, a scoreboard for the baseball diamond, or a fun drive for the Baptists who really needed it. It seems that the bottlers were so loved 
by the locals to the point of which they were referred to as your friendly neighbor. This name came about after the bottlers took the money they made and sewed it back into the business. And that's not Coca-Cola, but that's bottling. They bought new equipment to make soda, they bought bigger fleets of wagons, and then trucks to deliver it. They paid the salaries of thousands of mechanics, accountants, and delivery men. And as you probably would have guessed, in doing so, they built up local economies by creating jobs, not just in their plants, but in every industry that expanded along with theirs. And they even gave away money. Such monies were given to places like local schools. What is even cooler is that the bottlers were so closely affiliated with the towns that they were based, and generally they were so well off as a result of selling coke that they were usually expected to be asked to give things, to do things, and to help run things. As you probably would have guessed because the bottlers were so divided from the Coca-Cola company in a sense that they didn't really care about selling coke that much, they were more interested in actually bottling it and then moving on to make money by whatever means possible. It seems that the bottlers spent money on projects that had nothing to do with Coca-Cola. They might own beef cattle or plant pecan groves. Many of them bought part of an airline or acquired real estate as another way of making their fortunes grow. This did not sit well with the Coca-Cola company, as you probably guessed, because executives there believed that Coke was the most important calling in the world, and that anything that competed with it was to be avoided. Every penny of a bottler's profits ought to be ploughed back into selling Coke, the company said. Objecting vocally, sometimes aggressively when this was not the case, the split between these two operations continued over time. The Coca-Cola company would always be a place of neat desks, gold watches, and three-piece suits, hushed, carpeted, cool, and controlled, and removed from the fray. The irony is, however, the Coca-Cola company purely sold the concentrate, but the bottling part was all about the drink, Coca-Cola. So, although Coca-Cola wants the soda fountains to sell their concentrate, and build up the customer experience, it seems that the bottlers were actually making more waves in this respect, building up communities. This was more so the embodiment of the words that the Coca-Cola company wanted to happen. But it seems that the bottlers were making more waves in that respect. If we look back to when Candler and Thomson Whitehead had a conversation about the new bottling idea, we should easily remember that Candler said it was simply too expensive and that the investment required for a bottling plant was enormous. And this can be shown through what the bottlers had to do. They had to spend thousands on real estate, then thousands more on buildings and machinery. Even these early bottling machines were powered by foot pedals, which were gradually replaced by electric motors. By doing that, by replacing such machinery, it costs money. Thus, the bigger your operation, the more machines you needed. And they required not only the initial investment, but steady, skilled, and costly maintenance as well. You had to buy bottles too, which broke on a regular basis, and just as often were not returned by the people who drank the Coca-Cola inside them. You had to have vehicles to take the heavy bottles of Coke around to customers to give them for free in terms of marketing at the time. And you had to pay salaries for employees too. Now here's a crazy statistic. Experts at the time who were analyzing the difference between the capital investment made by bottlers compared with the Coca-Cola company's investment in its syrup production came up with a ratio of 20 to one. So 
the bottlers were spending 20 times more than the Coca-Cola company in terms of capital investment. And capital investment is essentially the money that you have to put into the business. This includes through the initial purchasing of things like property and machinery used for operations. And comparing the costs alone, one would assume that it would be very difficult to produce Coca-Cola in bottled format. But either way, between them, the two branches of the Coca-Cola business had produced a roaring success by the time the 20th century was just a few years old, with bottles of Coke parading into baseball games, lining the iceboxes of general stores and making their way out into the perspiring reaches of working class America being delivered to people who had neither the time nor the inclination to relax indoors at a soda fountain, bottling doubled and tripled Coke syrup sales, expanding faster than Candler ever could have done so on his own. By 1909, Thomason Whitehead had sold franchises to nearly 400 people. Thomason Whitehead were the kings of the Coca-Cola bottling business. They were selling Coca-Cola in portable form all over the country, and they would more than triple that number by the time they were done. Let's give a couple of figures real quick. The Coca-Cola company's syrup sales ballooned from 214,008 gallons in 1898, the last year Coke was served only at fountains, to 3,486,626 gallons in 1909. By 1928, more Coke would be sold in bottles than at fountains. That represented a huge opportunity cost to the Coca-Cola company because they weren't getting any of the revenues from this ballooning in sales. The Coca-Cola bottling franchises were making money at an alarming rate. These bottlers lived really well. Enormous empires flourished because of the money streaming from Coca-Cola bottling franchises. Bernard Biedenhahn, one of Joseph Biedenhahn's nephews, got the Monroe, Louisiana territory and quickly became a force to be reckoned with. He invested in what is known as Delta Airlines. I reckon many of our American listeners have probably heard of them before. And he invested into them when it was a crop dusting operation. And once the airline took passengers, the planes regularly called at Monroe whilst ignoring other cities of similar size. At the dinner table, Bernard would always say, Delta. He would shout Delta to the maid on the other side of the door when he and his guests wanted to be served. Over time, these bottlers became as important as the leaders of the Coca-Cola company within the social hierarchy they occupied. When the Atlanta Coca-Cola bottling company held a dinner to mark its 50th anniversary in 1950, they had the classiest of meals out there. They began with crab meat prepared in the French manner and culminated with baked Alaska. The bottlers had arrived. You would always know they were there when there was class and luxury. Thomas and Whitehead, however, although they became the wealthiest bottlers of all, they both died young. Thomas was known to his friends as Rare Ben. This is because he helped develop Lookout Mountain, which is still a place in Tennessee that is home of many of the Coca-Cola families and he'd amassed an impressive collection of rare books and manuscripts. He and his wife Anne endowed churches, hospitals and libraries with trust funds and gifts. When Anne Thomas died in 1938, one of the newspapers that were local, it was called a Chattanooga paper, described her as one of the richest women in the city 
and the Coca-Cola company sent an enormous cross of flowers to her funeral. Joseph Whitehead's widow, Letty Whitehead Evans, served for years on Coke's board of directors, and when she died in 1953, a private train marked Coca-Cola Special transported her coffin from one end of Virginia to another. With the bottlers prospering, some executives inside Coke came to believe that Candler, their fearless leader, had squandered an opportunity to generate even more money for the company. Every penny that the bottlers made after sifting out their costs for syrup, payroll, insurance, and everything else the business required remained for them to keep. That was the definition of their independence, and instead of profiting only through selling syrup to them, Coke might have been gathering all that cash on the sales of Coke in bottles too. The charitable view held that Candler had financed Coke's enormous expansion through the bottlers without any cost to Coke. But the angrier view inside the company was that he had given it all away. With every passing year, this irritation grew larger and larger, and the impact of what had came to be denounced as the Candler era had became more distressing. Now, by the end of 1915, Candler was gone from the company. He had quit to run for mayor of Atlanta, a race he won handily. He left behind a company that considered its bottling system sprawling, diffuse, and unruly, not to mention a terrible mistake of his rather than any other directors. But at the time, there were about 1,200 Coca-Cola bottlers, each with a specific territory, personality, and assorted business challenges. Most of the first-generation bottlers were seasoned executives with immense skill when it came to making money from their particular markets, and they also had these bossy tendencies when it came to dealing with the Coca-Cola company. They kept their franchises in the family, passing them down from father to son with all the gravity that such a large responsibility and investment commanded. Bottlers on their deathbeds were said to summon their heirs for a single piece of advice. Son, whatever you do, don't let them mess with the contract. And as one would probably assume, because heredity wasn't a necessary guarantor of success, the heirs weren't necessarily good either. Those were the ones that gave Coke executives sleepless nights. A wheat bottler was like an engraved invitation to Pepsi and other rivals to seize more market share. And Coke lived to be number one, but there was not much that Coke could do. The franchises stayed in the same families indefinitely. Unless someone decided to sell, syrup prices stayed fixed, and as time passed, little changed. The bottler network became like an old photograph in which the quality might have faded, but the composition remained the same. Generations of Coke executives looked at the arrangement and thought there had to be a better way. In 1919, just before the country became hooked on bootleg gin and the Coca-Cola bottle displaced the soda fountain as the best-known dispenser of Coke, the Candlers sold the company. And they did this to a group of bankers. The new management of the Coca-Cola company decided to do away with the contracts that Asa Candler had signed with the Coca-Cola bottlers. That $25 million sale of Coke took place a year after the armistice that had ended World War I. In the next episode of The Rise of the Coca-Cola Company, we will look at some of the aggressive measures that the new owners of the Coca-Cola Company had put in place to effectively force out the bottlers and regain control of the wonderful drink that is Coca-Cola. Thank you so much for listening. I've been your host, Ryan Keir. 
If you haven't already, feel free to head on over to our site, quantumresearch.co.uk, for additional articles, podcasts, and more. Until next time.